Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And this is Meghan Markle. No, it's not. Come on. Is it Megan or Megan? <laughs> Megan? Megan Markle. Meg, as Meg. Harry calls her. Oh, I've been it. consuming all this Harry Megan content a lot. I did. It was interesting because my son was downstairs watching the NBA All-Stars or whatever. They were doing all kinds of hmm. beeswax down there. And he was screaming from downstairs every time Steph Curry made some sort of three-pointer type of thing. Yeah. And then uh, and then I watched the entire with with Amanda, who was not that interested in Meghan Markle and Harry, but I I got her to watch it, and she liked it a lot. I think she hmm. didn't seem to be interested in it, uh, but it was a big splash for Paramount Plus, which is CBS All Access. It yeah. was a big plus for CBS. It had I think seventeen million. You know, Oprah can really still bring it when she needs to. Oh my to. gosh, she's a she's incredible. I thought for I, a minute she wasn't going to bring it, but she brings it. I, I didn't watch it. I think they should have renamed the episode "White Lives Don't Matter." I, I just think this is <laughs> literally. I what? think these are some of the most boring people on the planet. But no, you're wrong. Oh my you're gosh! Wrong. It was it it's was porn. A, it's like let let's trade. You, let's trade I, my celebrity and 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 talk yeah. shit and trade secrets. I didn't even watch the thing, and I watched. Why, why it. do we need to protect the crown? The crown is already like a successful. Oh, the uh, crown TV is wonderful. We love the crown. Well, we love the crown. season seven's going to be lit when you listen to this interview. Let me just say, it doesn't sound very pretty there. Over it's trading in on celebrity, they have so not created. What? So what? Big deal. Well, so what? God save Come the on. queen. Why do you like the crown and not this? Tell me uh, why. why. do I like the crown? I think yeah, that— because it's really f- quite fictional, according to many people who well, I don't, uh, I don't live doubt the that, crown. but it's good fiction. I just don't like people trading off celebrity they inherit. I, I don't like— I don't like the Trump kids who have done okay. nothing themselves, who have right. accomplished nothing themselves. And I don't—it's unfair. I don't—maybe uh, you can tell me about anything these two have accomplished on their own, but I feel well, like it's Well, she's been an porn. actress. She was on a relatively successful was TV she? show. Yes. Right. She was on Suits. She was She was fine. She, she was and then on she went, Suits. No, but it was a successful <laughs> show. Are you on a oh, successful no. show? I'm sorry. I, I would I would draw mil. everything I've said. <laughs> no, she was I think on it, suits. Look, Seventeen million people <laughs> okay. disagree with you that this is interesting. The well, cra- that's my they, point. Kidding? By the way, the point she was making during the interview was how much the tabloids in Britain have this deal with the with the Crown with the, with Buckingham Palace to mm-hmm. like they have parties for them and they trade access for behavior like not attacking certain members of the Crown like Prince Andrew, for example. Let me just say, the Crown is already doing this, so I don't know why you're all hot. Well, you know Harry. You know the story about Harry. When he was born, they were going to name him Up so they could call the family Up, Chuck, and Die. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's good royalty humor. Or they were going to call him, actually, the second name they had for him was Shamu, so they were going to call him Shamu, Prince of Wales. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
That's good royalty humor. That is not good. Let me anyway, just say, you liked it. You Diana, thought it was well done. I did because I think this fan. This, first of all, the crown is wrapped up in the tabloids already, and they have deals and everything else. The way that works in Britain, it's a whole little mm-hmm. economy. So I don't think there's anything wrong with these two cashing in on it. That's Uno. Dose. Her his mother died in a paparazzi accident. Like, come on. Like she was being well, that's chased. Not fair by to pa- pull that out. That's not fair I, to pull I, that. What does that have to do with Oprah interviewing because, them and moving to LA and going to Soho? Like all the they time. discussed like. Because one of the topics discussed was how much she didn't play the game and got attacked for her race. And there was a whole bu- – go look at the things of Kate Middleton, who's perfectly nice, and her. She Kate well, Middleton's pregnant, did. holds her belly. They're like, isn't this beautiful? She holds her I, belly I, I, and she's got a I, weird you're obsession. You're conflating. I don't no, – Princess Diana and they're, they're, whether her they're nice son. or not. And basically these, these folks cashing in. On again, celebrity based on in. other people's discretion and no. also their commitment to their nation discretion. and the crown. You love that crown, don't you? You think I the do. crown is all that? I think it's I'm, all been my, a scam. I, I was time. a I was a dual citizen. I was a British citizen for yeah, a short so time. You have to like the Queen. I, they were nice to the Queen during this interview, just so you know. The Queen didn't get well. Touched. They're not stupid. I mean, who's not well, going to be nice to the Queen? I think I kind of believe the Queen is one of the most. Uh, I think respected or well liked people in the world over the age of 105 Perhaps. or whatever she is now. Perhaps. It's <laughs> uh. <laughs> not that many. I thought it was, look, let me just say it was a huge, huge hit for Enormous, Oprah. Let's I just heard. talk about Oprah. Yeah. Oprah, once again, does a fantastic Unbelievable. job. Someone, someone Unbelievable. was just pointing, there were so many good tweets about the whole thing. That was my favorite part. It was like Oprah just start, restarted the War of 1812. Everyone was waiting for black Twitter to go against UK Twitter uh, because she was talking about racial issues quite a bit, including someone asking about the color of her baby skin and stuff. So I thought it was just, Good entertainment. That's what I say. Okay, at the end of the day, it's w- yeah. what I would call is it's anything about these two. It's a palate cleanser for anything of substance. So, okay, we don't, I'm sick of hearing about the pandemic. I'm sick of hearing mm-hmm. about what the Biden administration is doing. I know I'll watch Megan and Harry and talk about their new home in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, it, good no, for they them. Live in entertainment. Santa Barbara, in entertainment. case you're interested. They live in Santa, Santa Barbara. Barbara? That's right. They live in Santa Barbara. I just want to throw it out there and call this the Super Bowl for millennial women. Like, that's what it (laughs) was. Oh, there's Rebecca. I just need to throw it out there. Thank you. Rebecca, as usual, on my side. Correct, Rebecca? That's a shocker. That's a shocker. What do you mean? No, no. Get rid of the word almost and we're accurate. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You know what? You missed the entertainment. Like, it was fun. I didn't watch it. I I got to admit, I didn't watch it. It was so so good. So watch your NBA All Stars bullshit. Get I'm sorry. The millennial Super Bowl, does that mean it was very expectant and obnoxious and will decline in viewership 8% a year for the next 30 <laughs> oh, years? Oh, no, because it's Oprah. Thank After you, Rebecca. After the pod, I'm going to go watch it in. on Paramount+. Listen to, Plus. Me. Listen to me, Scott. Okay, go Oprah, ahead. it shows how good Oprah is, I, I have I, to say. I'm One with of you. The things, Oprah's someone a was like, She's fantastic. This is why she was so, I learned a lot as an interviewer. So someone, so Megan would say, you know, someone was tweeting about this X, Y, Z, and then Oprah would go, X, Y, Z? So she'd feign like she was excited. Shock. She was in with them. Shock. Then she sort of challenged them. She was, yeah. she's a genius. She's a freaking genius. No, she's though. very good. She's an inspiration. I say, love Oprah. I got to say, she's yeah. really good. She made yeah. some great yeah, entertainment. In any case. A billionaire who uh, deserves to be a billionaire. But anyway, my son was watching the NBA All-Stars, but the NBA created a blockchain. This is what he does not care about this. He cares about Steph Curry and three-pointers. But NBA created a blockchain advisory committee 
and a uh, friend of Pivot, Mark Cuban's involved, Ted Leonsis, yeah. uh, Joe Tsai from um, Alibaba. They'll determine how to leverage blockchain to benefit NBA's business. Oh, and now on. you can use Dogecoin to buy Mavericks Jesus merchandise. Christ. This is a slow news day. Why don't you and I create an <laughs> Ethereum advisory committee for Vox? I mean, who the fuck cares? <laughs> I think an advisory committee? That's oh, news? On. I'm going to Breaking news. Oh my a bunch God. of old gonna, white men are trying are to you act younger. What are you interested in? What are Literally, you interested in? This is, <laughs> this is like the, the mother of all Botox. I know. Let's try and pretend we're younger <laughs> oh and hipper with God. the young people and announce an advisory committee on well, they did pass. they did pass stimulus. What are you, what are you interested in, Scott Gallagher? There's not a lot me. going on this week. I'm, oh I'm excited. Oh, my God. What are you talking about? They passed I think the, the SPAC meltdown bit. is more interesting. And we're going to go into that in we're our gonna big story. We're going to go into our big story. Is there any other... Uh, look, I'm I'm a little bit anything? forlorn. I'm a little bit. Why? Why are you? Why forlorn? would I have my heart sort of broken today? Oh well, we'll get to that. Okay, never Mackenzie mind. Scott got married, and it wasn't to you. I am honestly, <laughs> honestly, okay. I am genuinely happy for her. I think her. science teacher. Aren't you? Look at that. He looks I nice am. too. She's so, she a is science so teacher? fantastic. Everything she's doing is like I, literally. She's my. Yeah. She's she's. A role model. You think yeah. to yourself, that's how I would want mm-hmm. my kids to grow up and behave. Uh, I don't yeah. know. She just, does she, I, I'm just, you know, I mean this sincerely. I read it and I'm like, I haven't been this happy for a famous person in a long, long time. I'm, it seems she to is me she's, doing it right. She's living she's her best finding life. Finding happiness. And, she's living her best life, giving yeah, away money, her. being her own That person. was a really nice story. I thought that yeah. was like, I'm like, God, when's the last time I opened TMZ and was happy? Yeah. Like yeah. page six. Oh my God, she I'm happy. It. When does that happen after you reach when page does that six? Happen? When does that happen? I don't know. Here's one good thing. CDC yeah. guidelines say people who are vaccinated can hang out with other people who are vaccinated indoors and just breathe all over each other. They're not tremendously concerned about more infection. That's good. That is good. I you think that's inside. really you can nice. Have restaurants have just vaccinated people like yourself. I'm so sick of hearing about restaurants. Jesus Christ. By the way, 27 what? million, 27 yeah. million, the National Restaurant Foundation got for got for uh, restaurants, but we could, yeah. but, but not all schools are open. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Johnny's Taqueria is going to stay open. I you just know, don't get the whole restaurant thing. This is not the I Hunger just, Games. We I can just speak don't get, restaurants. I just don't get the whole restaurant In any thing. case, this is, there's no perfect answer in this situation. Anyway, we're going to big stories now. Something you'll be happy about. SPACs are falling. The SPAC index fell 20% since February peak. This is a technical definition of a bear market. As a reminder, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what we like the word SPAC, essentially a shell company set up by investors for the purpose of raising money through an IPO, and then they back a company into it. They become the dominant way for a company to raise equity finance this year. Over 200 new SPACs have raised $70 billion in 2020. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, one of the most prominent SPAC holders, he has other SPACs, by the way, Chamath Palihapitiya, faced backlash last week after filing showed that he had sold his entire personal stake in Virgin Galactic, which he took public as a SPAC, one of the very earliest ones. So what what do you think, Scott? What's going on? Tell me about SPACs if you don't want to talk about important things well, like Well, spa- I think SPACs, we're going to look back on SPACs the same mm-hmm. way we looked back on the dot-com or dot-bomb, and that is a lot of them are just overvalued. But mm-hmm. the, the, it's a new financing mechanism. It's an interesting way. It's an of old sp- one that's become new. Well, it's but it's got in the in the first seventeen days of twenty twenty one there were more SPACs raised than in all of twenty nineteen. Right, I mean, but it had is, been something that had been around. But go ahead. And this is essentially, I think, of everything in the, through the lens now of dispersion, because um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping to get into the Urban Dictionary as the guy who is re- that your renamed next dispersion. book called Dispersion. My next book is called The Algebra of Wealth. Um, oh right, okay. 
strategies on personal and economic satisfaction. Anyway, you just churn these books out. I like to write. You do? I like to write. Uh, so, anyways, uh, write my book for what me. What are we talking about? Spacks. Oh, yeah. So, anyways, but it is it is the dispersion of investment banking, and that is mm-hmm. companies and operators, uh, and there's some very talented operators doing these things. Have said, okay. Uh, we don't need the investment committee of Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs to tell us who should be a public company. We'll go public mm-hmm. and we'll add a lot of operating muscle and tensile strength to a good private company and boom, just add water. It's public and reflects a few things. One, okay. never underestimate the market's ability to come up with a product when people have cash in hand. Sort of the mm-hmm. analogy I use was when it starts raining, there's an umbrella every for sale every six feet in Manhattan. And I'm like, where did mm-hmm. this guy come from? Where, did these umbre- where are they hiding these things? Anyways, it is... They are a lot are going to go out of vogue. A lot are overvalued, but I do think for the first time these things are here to stay. And here to stay. Chama, so sort of spack positive. I mean, there's there's what I'd call the bearded lady and the world's strongest man inside the tent, and then there's the mm-hmm. guy in front of the tent saying, "Come on in, come on in." And Chamath has done. You can call him a storyteller, teller, a visionary, P.T. Barnum, but he has been the face. For SPACs. SPACs. And he was early. He got them done early. He was visionary about it. Mm-hmm. But when you sell your entire stake, like, to be fair, it's not his entire stake because he has a company that mm-hmm. owns other shares in. But when you sell yes. $200 million in one day of your, there's just no getting around it. It's yeah. a negative forward-looking indicator that an individual yeah. who understands his company fairly well and understands the market, he's a Maybe great investor. Maybe he's buying investor. NFTs. Maybe he's doing that. But go ahead. Well, this, is, this was the ultimate jujitsu move, I thought, on his mm-hmm. part. He said, well, I'm still committed to their mission despite selling a quarter of a billion dollars in stock. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm taking the money to reinvest in uh, climate change. That's like saying, well, mm-hmm. if he decides to bail on the shares of his other SPACs, is it going to be to cure cancer? I thought that was an interesting kind of, kind of um, uh, acrobatics yeah. or gymnastics to try yeah. and turn chicken shit into, turn, into chicken salad. Ooh. But it ended up just that one sale, uh, the whole market yeah. went. Well, yeah, if Chamath, if the king of yeah. SPACs has decided to leave the kingdom and go on Oprah and talk about how much the kingdom sucks, mm-hmm. then something's wrong. And the whole space, and it's not his fault, but all you need is is an excuse for a space that's overvalued yeah, to begin leaking value. SPACs, no question. So, so they, but they, look, certain SPACs have raised the money and they have to either use it, use it or lose it, right? By yeah, a certain, two, years. two and a half years, two years. Two years. So the ones that exist are going to have to back themselves into a bunch of companies. Oh, uh, I mean, you want to talk about, there's now something like 150. Uh, right, looking for... Uh, and I'll add, if it's 150 billion searching, it's really more like half a trillion because they typically do staple on financing or a pipe. Yeah. So there just aren't that many great private so companies. So you're going to see around. you're going to see um, um, you're going to see SPAC start to go abroad. You're going to see them go into Latin America and Europe. But basically, right. there's so too much capital looking deals. for good private companies. And then there's here. all that venture capital. There's a lot of capital. Uh, it's, gonna it's, be, there's there's going to be dough. especially a lot of spending going to be happening in the next few months. I think. Um, so, what does it say about the IPO landscape in general? That's a good question. I think that it's bifurcating, and that is people people have been saying, or the easy. The, the, the kind of easy narrative is, well, this hurts investment banks because now there's new investment bankers. No, it's not. Goldman Goldman and Morgan Stanley are taking SPACs public, taking their 7%. And there's definitely a bifurcation, and that is investment banks, Goldman and Morgan Stanley. Everything distills down to one dynamic in our society, Kara. Which is? iOS and Android. And iOS mm-hmm. is the premium Kind of, kind of, kind of a higher end, more aspirational, cost more positioning, mm-hmm. luxury positioning, and Android is for the masses. 
and it works really well and is almost just as good, 80% of the value of iOS for 0% of the price. And essentially mm-hmm. what you have now is SPACs that go public, and then you have companies that go public through J.P. Morgan, uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman, and quite frankly, they're just of a higher quality. Mm-hmm. And so iOS is the is the companies that choose to go public the old-fashioned way. And everybody says, everybody complains, VCs, oh, they screwed up, they got a huge pop, they left money on the table. It's a branding event. If your company goes up 30, 50, 100%, you're not getting, you didn't lose 50% of your net worth. Usually right. they only take 10% of the shares public. So if you underpriced it, then you lost 5% for what is the branding event that you will never have again because you're on the cover of every business story the next day saying, you know, Coursera, which is filed to go public, up 40%. So they purposely, it's an ecosystem where everyone sort of wins. And that is, okay, the initial shareholders complain that they they left money on the table, Eh, sort of not really because of the branding event. And also the investment bank gets to give a pop to their clients. It's a big ecosystem. It's a big, so what happens, these SPACs will find homes and they will find companies to back into them. And then- these IPO landscapes, what? There's just more public companies or some are questionable well, or they find shitty companies? We're catching up. There's been a dearth mm-hmm. of IPOs and the number of companies mm-hmm. publicly traded in the last 30 years has been cut in half. So you could argue yeah. that this is just a regression to the mean and there'll be more publicly traded companies. I would say somewhere between a third and two-thirds of SPACs will trade below their their offering price. We're already getting there. We're already starting mm-hmm. to see the SPAC index come back to where they went public right. at. But it's definitely, I think the mechanism as a form of fundraising is definitely here to stay. It, this right, is an it innovation not, that's It will working. not be quite this, this fervor. Well, SPAC, if you look at the economic history of SPACs, mm-hmm. they typically underperform the market because yeah. the investment committees at Morgan and Goldman are mm-hmm. smart and can can pick from Decide the best companies. Ones. So Pick of the litter. There's a lot right. of litter going on here. That's right. What do you think? Uh, What's your you, I think there won't be as much fundraising and everyone and their mother won't have a SPAC like everything else, just mm-hmm. like Substacks or podcasts or anything. Everyone all rushes into things and then mm-hmm. they rush right out. Like, you know, audio, any everything, everything. And this is just the same thing. And they'll run out of really good things to do and some of them will do well and some of them won't. But- um, it's certainly an easier way for a lot of companies to go public, for sure. And we'll see where that goes. Whether they should be public is another question. You just All said right, almost nothing. I you just not. said almost nothing. Not, you conditioned everything. You literally conditioned <laughs> everything. It would be impossible for you to be wrong with what you just said. No, I don't. I, like anything else, it over. It could rain. It might under. not. It could rain. It might not. <laughs> not. There won't be. All right. Here, it's neither here nor there. There will not continue to raise as much capital. Some of these companies will do badly because they aren't as good at picking things. I just like got you very said. self-conscious. You know, I'm self-conscious. You did. You got mean there. Right. That's okay. It's, of course, it's International Women's Day, and you attack a woman, but that's okay. All right, Scott, let's go to oh, a quick break. That, <laughs> that is that. Well, by the way, that's entirely fair. That's entirely it's true. fair. It you is, know what? I look forward to a day. Very I look forward to a time care when we aggrieved. don't need an International Women's Day. I feel day. unsafe. I look I feel forward safe in this relationship. <laughs> that, I, look, I, I feel unsafe. <laughs> I feel unsafe. Um, I, feel unsafe. Uh, I look forward to an age when we don't yeah. have to have an international Women's Day. But anyways, oh my God. And by yeah, the way, well, I'm that would be nice. I'm that not, be not nice only self-conscious now about under the law. Same thing for everybody about else you. Uh, uh, about you, you saying I'm mean and not nice to women, which will always <laughs> stick when you say that about me. And to, you know what I'm really self-conscious Listen, about? We have to go to a break. Well, what? hold on, hold on. I have all this. I, I tell you, I'm self-conscious. Uh, yeah, and you, you don't. You don't care. Uh, I'm self-conscious. I have all this family. Oh, feign interest. Go ahead. Tell me about it. I have all this family. You, no, do what Oprah does. What? You're insecure? What? You're what? <laughs> You're self-conscious? Huh? 
Oprah would I move have it right all, along. I have Oprah all this family. Oprah would move you along. I have all this family in London and Glasgow, and I'm worried. Yeah. My comments were were supportive of the crown, right? They're not going to be of mad course. at me. Okay, oh, good. God. I'm fine. I'm fine. You good. I'm fine. There's not a queen you don't love. Anyway, we'll go to a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk about the future of education tech, and then we'll be joined by New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, who has a new book called Future Proof. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Scott, we're back. Let's talk about your area of expertise, education tech. Mm. Coursera is among the education tech companies going public this week. And then your company, Section 4, has raised $30 million. Speaking of not enough uh, rad holes to shove all the cash down, your <laughs> company, Section 4, has I raised $30 million. I appreciate your support, Kara. Full I, disclosure. We were just explain. about to ask you to go on the advisory board of our rad <laughs> No, hole. thank you. I don't do, I don't do any yeah, advisory boards. No, you're too Explain pure. to us, yes, I am, why you think education tech is the next big thing. Please, t- please illuminate us on, the, okay, on what you're so, doing there. And what do you think about Coursera, too, and all these so education look, uh, tech? Tuition up 1,400%. The upward yep. lubricant of the middle class in America has been accessed to cheap, mm-hmm. uh, great education. It's now become the caste system where we yep. enforce on people. We say you're either the children of rich people or freakishly remarkable, or you don't mm-hmm. get into a great school. And yep. my cohort has become drunk on luxury and brag about turning away 95% of our applicants. And the result is a transfer of wealth of $1.5 trillion, middle-class households to the endowments and pockets of administrators. So there is the mother of all chins hanging out there. My company, Section 4, is very straightforward. I think the scarcest product in the world. Yeah. When I see scarcity, I mean value relative to the number of people who are uh, uh, the product is available to, yep. is the American MBA. It's a global right. brand. It is transformative. Kids who come into the Haas School of Business at Berkeley are making 70 grand. When they leave, they're making 140 grand 24 months later. It is transformative. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the total market for graduate MBAs full time is about 8,000 people a year. If you are one of the 66% of America that doesn't get a college degree, not accessible. If you're one of the 99% of America that can't take a half a million dollars in investment and lost income, you're shit out of luck. If you're, say, have a kid at home or you're a single mom, there is no opportunity for you or you've collected things like dogs and spouses. So what I, our vision is we want to make it accessible. It's 10% of the price and 1% of the friction. Education. Well, by the way, I want to ask one, you're at NYU, so you're kind of playing against your business. Biting the hand that feeds me? Biting the hand that feeds you. I've returned my compensation for the last decade, so they're no longer feeding me. Enough virtue signaling. Yeah, okay. All right. Go ahead. So uh, when you think about this, education kind of has failed us during the pandemic. It's been a really bad experience, I think, for everybody. And and this idea of analog education or analog people going to school, people seem to, that's the one thing. Telework, I see. Telehealth, I see. 
it's continuing, but teleeducation just hasn't been as great as it could be. As it could be. So, what? How do you? How do you just? How do you justify that? Well, how, what do you think is happening? It's not here? either or. It's it, right. uh, the jig is up. A lot of people have realized that they're paying fifty nine thousand dollars for a streaming video platform called Harvard when it's online. Yeah. And agreed. also, it's where are we headed? The same way we're headed with the office. It's not going to be all remote. But the dirty secret of every professor is the following. We have two or three good jokes. And what I mean by jokes is we have two or three real insights that our research has, has, has provided okay. or produced. And we yeah. stretch it out over 36 podium hours in 12 weeks such that our host institution can charge seven or $8,000 for those 12 so you have weeks. you just two things to say, really? Well, entire- uh, I generally believe, and the model of our framework is the following. In two to three weeks with intensity, team groups, a bunch of TAs, live streams, videos, we can get 70 to 80% of the intellectual property across to you for, again, 10% of the price. And, right. and we've talked about friction, Google's, the Google's certificates, which too. Which I'm super excited about, which and I keep hearing nothing about. Us. No, actually, they tweeted back saying that this is when they're starting. No, 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 you aren't paying they attention. They said stay tuned. Way. Stay tuned. We're yes, tuned but in. It's coming. I'm ready. We're tuned in. Okay. I'm ready. So, so but anyways, so you're ahead. right. It, but where I was headed with this is, it's not going to all remote because you're right. Remote, it, it, it's not. There's something to the electricity, but the dirty secret of mm-hmm. higher ed is the following: half our classes, half mm-hmm. our classes where there's not a lot of interaction, could be done synchronously, I'm not saying videos, but synchronously online and lower costs. And what do you do? You take UCLA back to 60% admittance instead of where it is 12%. And by the way, their applications are up 28%, meaning the kids of single parents, not remarkable, are no longer getting the same access to opportunities that you and me got 30 years ago. So big tech, small tech, Online learning, a mix. It's a mix. It's not zero mm-hmm. one. It's a hybrid. It's some well, tell on me what campus. you think of analog. Are you back in school? Are you back in teaching? I will be in the fall. Okay. So there's what, a magic me- and a mystery to being in a classroom, Greek style theater, seeing people's emotions. It's fantastic. Right. But right. you could have ninety-five percent of that with six of those classes in in person and then six online, and then we can lower the so cost and the increase the admissions rates. In line? What's the six percent that's in on in in person? When you say the six percent hours, oh, well, the you six said sessions. Some, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. What should be the real lives analog session? Where what you have good? the key sessions that are important, and there are a lot okay. of them, is when you have interaction with the students, and it's the bumping up against your students where you say, okay, should Dotson have become Nissan? Why was it good? Why was it bad? Should Google have launched YouTube? I mean. That is, there's fantastic learning there, but there's also a lot of classes where you're basically just lecturing and they don't need to haul their ass to Soho or to Palo Alto or to Ann Arbor. And also it scales really well. Online, Mm -hmm. I have two, I taught 160 kids. I teach 160 kids in person because guess what? That's the biggest classroom at Stern. And, but when I go online, I have 280 kids. So the question is how do we leverage, I'm not saying replace, but supplement online such that we can dramatically increase scale and stop this bullshit of thinking we're Hermes and realize we're public mm-hmm. servants again, dramatically increase acceptance rates, dramatically decrease costs, and provide and younger people with the same opportunity my generation had. And then get certified. I don't certified. know why I'm so angry. Why am I so angry? Now, you're yeah. very angry about this because you just raised on. $30 million for your rat hole. Um, but <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, what do you think about uh, K through 12, though? Seemingly problematic from a mental health person. Why? Uh, look, I, 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 I think it's. I think the two are totally different. I think a 19-year-old taking half his classes at home or even trapped at home is a nuisance, but it's not a tragedy. A fourth grader mm-hmm. needs, in my view, and I have experience with this. My, my this is pulse marketing. I don't. I feel like I have some 
research background mm-hmm. in higher ed, but none in K through 12. But what I've noticed personally is when a fourth and a seventh grader are trapped at home and doing remote learning, y- your house can collapse. That it's mm-hmm. incredible stress on the mother. And let's be honest, it's almost always the mother that picks up the slack. And yeah. kids need socialization. Kids need to, to make but eye contact with their teacher. don't. Not as much. Graduate. Okay. Not as much. You know right. why? Because the socialization, well, they'll do regardless of the class. Well, essentially, so you're trying to put NYU out of business, I see. This is what's happening here. Is that correct? <laughs> Ooh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to choose my words carefully here. Uh, no, I'm going to give stock to NYU. And NYU, actually, to their credit, <laughs> yeah. they kind of embrace yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Let me put it this yeah. way. I'll give you this. They're more generous and patient with me than I would be with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they they like this stuff. They've even they've actually approved some professors teaching on it. They're trying to. They don't see it. I am the reality with you is, on this. It's not competitive this. because I can't get you the certification that a top twenty right. MBA gets you, and it's still incredibly powerful for all the and, shit and we talk about. And that's what should happen. That's the next shoe to drop. Correct. The certification, some sort of. Well, that's what Coursera is trying to do. Yeah. Coursera, yeah, the original gangster here, has filed to go public. I think that's yeah. going to be. I don't know if it'll get at the pop. I think it's a fan, it's going to be a fantastic stock to own. Uh, I should say mm-hmm. that I shouldn't say that until I know the valuation. But these guys are the original gangsters. They took a mm-hmm. lot of arrows. They got a lot of mud on their face. They were the pioneers here, and I think it's really exciting that they're going public. Yes. Online education and capital really holds out the opportunity to move away from this bullshit artificial constraint of campus and self-aggrandizing arrogant administrators at universities and move it back to where it needs to be. And that is the greatest upward lubricant in the history of mankind. And that is higher ed that is affordable and lets in unremarkable kids and says, you're unremarkable, but we're going to give you remarkable opportunities. We become totally drunk on the freakishly remarkable and rich people. Does that bother you that I'm freakishly remarkable and you're unremarkable? (laughs) That's my question. I'm used to it. I'm used to it. All right. This gets us in a perfect situation for our friend of Pivot. Kevin Roos is a tech columnist for the New York Times. He has a new book out called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. It focuses a lot more on automation, but Kevin, you've just been listening to us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about future. What do you think of what Scott's saying here? Does this fit into your future-proof situation where we have to proof ourselves? from You're you're talking about automation most of the time, not online school, essentially. Yeah, well, I think a a lot of that is connected. I think what we're seeing now, and, and the reason I wrote this book is because We've seen this huge influx of AI and automation into industry um, and higher education and journalism, and it's changing all of our jobs and requiring us all to adapt. And so I was just I was freaked out because I was looking at my own future and and thinking like, what can I actually do mm-hmm. to prepare for this? And I think as as Scott said, like I think we've we've realized now that some parts of what we do are likely to be sort of automated or taken online or disaggregated in some way. And so it's up to it's up to us to figure out how to deal with that. All right, name some of the rules. Tell us what the rules. Well, there are nine rules in the book. The, the subtitle is Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Nine. I wanted to be being... more more efficient than the, okay. uh, than, the, than the Ten Commandments. Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> so this is just nine here. Right. But yeah, they're, they're basically three buckets of rules, and I won't list them all because that'll take forever. But basically, there, there are three buckets. One is how to future-proof your life at home, your, your <laughs> brain, your, you know, your personal life, your family life, how to future-proof your career, and how to future-proof your community. All right, give um, us one from each. So the, the one that is um, 
for your your own self um, is that I think there are, you need to find work that is, um, or you need to basically find things to do that are not going to be replaced by machines. I think we've been training people for the future entirely wrong. We've been teaching them to, you know, become more machine-like, to major in STEM, to become super efficient, to take all the, you know, optimize mm-hmm. and life hack their way to success and I think we really need to focus on the more human skills that machines can't replace. Creative ones. Yeah, so creative ones, um, compassion. I, I have three categories in the book of work that I think is is unlikely to be automated soon, and it's surprising, social, and scarce. Okay, um, so those are the All types right, of career. Work. Um, a career. One thing that I I think you both have done very well is to. Uh, what I call leave handprints, which is to make make yourself less of a sort of cog in a machine to make it hmm. clear that you know you are a human creating human work. Um, one of the things I got from interviewing AI experts and economists from this book is that in the future, things that are done by machines will become very cheap, and things that are done by humans will become more valuable. Artisanal. Um, we leave our dirty handprints. You know that. That's our hmm. that's our thing. I like okay. that. There's there's a there's a lot yeah. of literature showing that pe- we actually value things more. When we think that people had a real hand in creating them, All right. um, and so that's something that people can do for their careers and for your community. I mean, I think that the the sort of what we teach children and what we teach you know our, ourselves as adults is really important here. I think that we've we need a kind of update to the curriculum that we've been teaching people now for a hundred years, which is all about making people into effective, you know, workers in a, in an economy that rewards things like output and productivity and, and efficiency rather than the more human traits that I think people are going to end up moving to as a result of AI and automation. Gosh, I love that. Leave handprints. So first off, and this is the most important question, although it's a bit of a digression, do you meditate? I try. I uh, yeah. I I don't always succeed, but I try. Because I can just hear in your voice, you have nice chi and center. We need to roll. We need to hang because my testosterone therapy <laughs> has totally don't. made me jumpy. So we'll talk after the show. But anyways, <laughs> kudos to you. I can tell you're a centered person. I love that hands on. Let me ask you the following. My sense is we need a new approach that all capital sees um, labor that doesn't have a double E from MIT as a cost and a negative, as opposed to looking at people and trying to figure out how automation enhances human capital instead of replaces it. Don't we need a different mindset around robotics? Uh, Isn't the problem us, not the robots? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the key lessons of of the book is that robots don't do anything on their own right now. I mean, we people say you know robots are coming for the jobs, but it's really the you know the executives people. at the Fortune 500 companies mm-hmm. who are saying I want to shrink you know the accounting department by by you know 200 heads, or I need to you know squeeze out some more margin in next quarter's numbers, so I'm going to mm-hmm. automate these jobs away. Um, it's a really simplistic, really substitutive kind of automation that we're seeing a lot now. It's you know as as I put it in a story yesterday for the Times, like it's about replacing fill in accounting rather than you know mm-hmm. becoming a market leader doing new dynamic things developing new products um, the the so, uh, economists call this like so-so automation it's like the kind that kind of sucks <laughs> you know it's like the the automated customer service line that you're like I just want to press zero and get to a human right. like mm-hmm. please put me through to a human um, that's the kind of automation we're seeing a lot in the corporate world right now and that's the part that's really dangerous because that's not actually adding to human capability that's not 
empowering workers. That's not you know developing new tools that are going to move the economy forward. It's purely substituting a machine for a human. And what do you see as when when you what do you think that what do you think the most exciting technology? I mean, robotics is my understanding is is an out, an amalgam or an alchemy of different technologies. What technology specifically do you think is driving the the boom in robotics. And the reason I'm asking is what area, if people want to devote their human capital or financial capital, uh, not only just to robotics, but what is, you know, it was the micro, it was Intel that, that drove the computing revolution, you could argue. And that was, a, Intel was a great stock down. What are the technologies that are driving robotics right now? Well, machine learning is the big one. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing that is transforming automation from something that can do rote and repetitive work to something that can do more kinds of creative, um, you know, sort of cognitive work. Um, and that's what we're seeing now is that, you know, people I think still conceive of AI and automation as this thing that's going to replace people in factories. Um, and the thing is, like, the factories are largely automated already. That happened a long time ago. Um, now, you know, the, the Robots are doing more kind of like managerial tasks. There's some great research out from the Brookings Institution in Stanford about the fact that actually the people at most risk of replacement from AI are white collar professionals in big mm-hmm. metro areas who are doing you know sales projections and data analytics and those kinds of sort of cognitive tasks that you know are done by people with college degrees who make a lot of money. Um, that's not safe the way that we thought it was. So, so when you think about that, what, what this debate right now is over the $15 minimum wage. What happens to those jobs? Do you feel hmm. that they're um, at risk? Certainly. I mean, retail is a, is a big target of, of companies doing automation. You know, we've already started to see some of that happening with, you know, the self-serve kiosks mm-hmm. at fast food restaurants. I know Amazon um, just came online somewhere. Where was it? So I just yeah. read a story. I mean, I think what, what worries me is, is, um, is less the sort of threat of displacement for those workers because I think some of that stuff is going to be end end up being surprisingly hard to automate. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of turning; it's using automation and AI to turn workers into human robots, essentially. Such this a is push what we button, see, like at Amazon yeah, warehouses. Exactly. So if you work at an Amazon warehouse, you know you are taking instructions from one algorithm. Mm-hmm. You're putting things into a box. You're wearing a bracelet that tracks your productivity. You can be fired if you miss your packing target. I mean, it's it's essentially these jobs are kind of human robots, and I think that that's one of the cautionary tales. And like, they have the arms to do it right now until they figure out arms that can do it better. Exactly, and so those people, uh, you know, should be concerned. But it's also like we, there are very there are ways that this can improve workers' lives. That people mm-hmm. can be freed up from mundane, you know, sort of bullshit tasks. tasks. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're just not seeing enough of that right now. We're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, I want to replace. Ten people in accounts payable, so I'm going to buy this off the rack, you know, AI solution that can do that for me. So should we work at all? Like, I mean, this idea of you know, there's there all those movies where we just sit in chairs and eat, and then robots take over. Is that the? Is that? Do you predict that's what's going to happen with automation? Or is there any need for humans? Yeah, I think there's I mean, definitely a a, obviously I, there is, but. There's definitely a need for humans. Uh, I'm not full dystopian, but I, I think that our jobs are going to change a lot. I think that right now a lot of people are employed in jobs that involve making things. Mm-hmm. And I think that the future of jobs are going to be jobs that involve making people feel things. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to be the kind of things that bring about human connection. You know, It's not going to be enough to be a really good radiologist. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to have to have a good, side, good bedside manner too so that people have a reason to come to you rather than going to an AI. Scott? 
And what do you, uh, we were just talking about education. Uh, do you see any thoughts around robotics as it relates to education and also uh, healthcare? Yeah, I mean, these are the areas that have been sort of resistant to automation. Um, you know, we don't have robots teaching college classes, most of them. Yet. Um, <laughs> yet. Uh, we don't have, you know, robot doctors, many of them yet, but th- that's coming. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to, stop educating people um, and, and telling them that they need to take on the machines head on to sort of compete with them, like the old you know John Henry thing. Mm-hmm. And we need to start telling people what they can do that is not going to be disrupted by these forces. Um, and that's a journey that I've been on too. I mean, I'm a journalist at a newspaper. That's not like the most future-proof job but in wait, the world. Wait, wait, why not? What, who, how, are you, how are you getting replaced? Well, for example, I'm too old, so. one of my first jobs in journalism was I was, you know, I covered finance and I wrote corporate earnings stories. Yeah. You know, Alcoa made, though. you know, this much money last mm-hmm. quarter in their smelting division, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. And that's largely been automated in, in just the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, those those jobs are, are few and far between now. And I think there's another way in which, you know, automation has changed our industry, which is something that we don't talk about as much, which is that we've replaced these people who we used to call editors um, and ad salespeople with algorithms run by Google and Facebook that now choose what to show people and, you know, sell the ads around it. So there's been a lot of automation happening in our industry. It just hasn't been happening at the news organizations. It's been mm-hmm. happening in Silicon Valley. Your insight and your word, artisanal, is really, I think, striking insight as I think about it. And I'm going to parrot it as my own. But the notion that any activity that's rote, that's the opposite of artisanship, right? I mean, what you do, and I think, you know, most of the journalists other than Kara Swisher at the New York Times do, is it's artisanal. They actually come up with original ideas that no AI for decades is going to be able to do. It's, and I, I think that's a very interesting way of looking at saying, okay, artisanship. So how do you prepare a new generation of, of people coming up and maybe the ones that don't have access to college? Uh, how, do you, how do you encourage or how does our education system instill artisanship? Well, I think it has to start from instilling a sense that this stuff is valuable, that mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to be unemployable if you're a you know, musician or a philosopher or a sociologist. I mean, there was this really strong thread coming out of Silicon Valley for many years about the fact that you know, STEM education was all that mattered. Um, right. That you know, I think Mark Andreessen said you know, English too. majors are going to end up working yeah. in shoe stores and stuff yep. like that. Mm-hmm. And so we really defunded and devalued those humanities programs. Uh, and I think we're starting to see the results of that. I had a tech CEO tell me uh, you know, recently, like, I can hire tons of engineers, but I'm having a lot of trouble hiring salespeople because no one in the Bay Area <laughs> like, has the people skills to be able to go to a company and sell right. them software. And like, that is a real missing piece in, in the economy today are the people with those kind of empathetic human communication skills. And I think we need to start reorienting the curriculum that we teach to kids but the jobs um, will around be, that. The jobs would be healthcare workers, they would be social workers, they would be what else? Well, I think the, the the sort of categories that are sort of most automation resistant right now are in things like healthcare. Um, but I, I actually think that the job based sort of taxonomy of like mm-hmm. this job is going to be totally safe from automation and this other right. job is not is not going to be safe. Mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah. I think it's about the 
the way that you do that job. Are you doing it in a rote and repetitive way, or are you doing it in a creative and human way? And so that's what the book is trying to sort of guide people to. Is like even if your job is not you know being an artist, even if you're an accountant, like there are ways to do that job that are more human and more you know less automatable. And so pushing people toward those parts of their jobs is is one of the goals here. But when do computers get the ability to do that? Or are they on that? You're already starting to see sort of AI do some kinds of, you know, sort of emotional, what I'd call like emotional work, like analyzing emotions. I mean, they've implemented you know, bots that are sort of therapy bots for, you know, people who are, who, mm-hmm. you know, who need some sort of assistance there. Um, in education, I mean, you know, you already see um, things that are sort of being, you know, dynamic curricula that are being, you know, used by AI uh, or that, you know, is using AI to, to sort of personalize uh, learning for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those, those kinds of jobs are, are, are you know, are something to think about, but I, I, I do think that this kind of task based, this this sort of job based framework is not mm-hmm. the right one. I think we need to be thinking le- less about what you're supposed to be doing to prevent, you know, to make yourself future proof, right. and more about how you're supposed. But there to be are doing certain it. jobs that really are right have a big red target on them for sure. Sure, but there, you know, that's not to say that those jobs are going to go extinct. I mean, even though the corporate earnings reports journalists are not doing so well these days, um, people who you know are creative and flexible and and very human are finding ways to make money off of it. So I think that's where the value is going is to the to the things that are sort of deeply human and away from the things that are more mechanistic and and based on sort of productivity and output. So whenever you write a book, you tip you go in with a set of of kind of predetermined theses around what's the bo- the book is going to be about. There's some thoughts on okay, I want to write about X, Y, and Z, and then you do the research, you write the book, and typically you discover a couple things that sort of change your view. What did you come out after writing this book? What did you what changed in your view of automation and robotics? So I started off as basically an optimist about AI and automation. And I still am, although I've tempered it somewhat. I, I now call myself a sub-optimist because I think, I think this technology can be amazing if we do it right and thoughtfully. I mean, it could free us from our you know, worst tasks. It could you know, solve world hunger and climate change and you know, cure diseases. Um, the technology is not the problem. It's, it's the people who are implementing the technology right now that's the problem. And so I think that's what's changed in my view of of you know AI and automation is that you know it's it's not a guarantee that all this is going to improve people's lives. We actually have to make to work hard to make that happen, um, and people need to prepare themselves. It's not enough to you know attend a, a coding boot camp anymore. You really have to really have to work on yourself so that you're ready and you're not as replaceable as as you might be right now. So speaking, I'm going to ask you one further question. Speaking of the people responsible for making these decisions about algorithms or automation or cutting costs, there are people doing this um, at the top who just want to make more money and they want to cut costs. And the pandemic's been a way to hide a lot of these sins, essentially. Like, why not do this? I've heard, like... I have three or four people have gotten laid off recently who had jobs like that, that they're trying, we're saving costs now since the pandemic. But I think it's just a feint because this is what they want to do in the first place. But one of the things you do write about, and I love your comment uh, at the end of this, you write a lot about misinformation and you've, you've sort of looked at the past year or two um, and these hearings are coming up on Capitol Hill around the impact of social media networks on, 
on the, on the attack on the Capitol. What is your assessment right now, given you're a sub-optimist, but I think in this case you may not be an optimist, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the misinformation conversation is related to the automation mm-hmm. conversation. I think, you know, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about automation is kind of external automation, mm-hmm. you know, like robots coming into factories and stuff like that. But there's a kind of internal automation that's happening to a lot of people that is really worrisome. And I include myself in that. I mean, every day we wake up and we look at our phones and we are just fed algorithmic, you know, feeds and you know, machine-generated recommendations, and and our our phones and our devices are telling us what to think about. And misinformation is is you know has always been present, but now it's sort of hyper uh, hyper present because of these algorithms and the platforms that that use them. Um, and so I think it's not only enough to sort of like you know get the right job to to you know future-proof your career. You also it's it's also about detaching yourself from some of the kind of um, the the sort of technologies that. Exist to sway your opinion, mm-hmm. to you know persuade you of something that maybe you don't want to be persuaded of, and to ultimately sort of confuse you about who you are. I mean, you have to know yourself better than the algorithms know yourself, or else you're going to be replaced. And how do you look at these companies now? How they influence us? Well, I think they exert tremendous influence, and I think they um, they don't want to admit it, but they you know they they do have. Uh, I mean, that's that's another thing that I, I think I've become much more skeptical on is I, I think that you know AI is never going to make for a, an an effective sort of editing function. Um, mm-hmm. What we've seen at Facebook, you know, they right. they've been promising for years. You know, we're going to automate content yes, moderation. Have. AI is going to take over. It's going to filter out all the hate speech and all the misinformation. And I think what they've realized belatedly um, is that humans are just better at that. And so yeah. you have to bring in a bunch of people and train them and put them to work in content moderation, you know, divisions. And that that's sort of a, a mistake of over automation and underinvestment in in human potential. On that note, Kevin, your book is called Future Proof. It's an excellent book. I've read it. Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Thank you so much. Let's roll, Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Don't roll I need the D. Don't roll with them and figure out a way I can put a, one of those Amazon watches on Scott and make sure his productivity is and up. And Kara, I should, I should say, like you are a big part of the reason that this book exists at all. Because I threatened you. Yeah, because a couple of years ago we were talking and I said, I have this idea for this book called Future Proof about how people can protect themselves from AI and automation. And you said, uh, you know, well, that's a great idea. And if you don't write it, I'm going to. Yeah. And, yes. I, and I said, as and Michael Jordan see, would say. That about I, sums up Kara uh, Swisher. <laughs> I was as, trying to get him to oh do it. God. I wasn't going to do it. And as <laughs> Michael Jordan would say, I took that personally. Yes, good. She Dave, left her handprints on you. I left my handprints. I was trying to scare you because you thought I could. You thought I could. I might. That's right. Good. Right. Good for you. I opened exactly. you. So, That's so what I thank did. you for inspiring me to yes, do this through book. Fear um, and loathing is how I like to do it, and I'm glad it's here. It's a beautiful congrats book. On the book. And thank congr- you. do not hang with Scott. Let me just give you that piece of, Don't another piece of advice. Don't say that. We're going right, to double date with Megan and Harry. Okay. Don't insult. Them. And Oprah. Thank you so much. Thanks, are, Kevin. Congrats we're on the book. Get you. our dirty handprints on the rest of the show, but we really appreciate it. It's a great Thanks book, so much. and you should all buy it. Okay, Scott. We'll be back after one quick break for wins and fails. Okay, Scott, wins and fails. Obviously, your failure to marry Mackenzie Scott was 
was it was a it was a grave error despite the fact that you well, are Well, I have a trivia ordinary. question for you, Kara. Okay, go ahead. And this is my win. Okay. Do you know which organization is responsible for three quarters of all charity money given last year by philanthropists for pandemic relief? Oh, the US government? Who is responsible for three quarters? Uh, I'll make it easy. What individual is responsible for three quarters of all pandemic-related giving philanthropy last year? Bill Gates. Mackenzie uh, Scott. Oh, there you go. Right. So my win, I think Mackenzie Scott is a wonderful person. I yeah. loved, and we talked about this, rather than taking, and you'll like this, a, a male approach to giving where she wants yes. her name etched in marble rather than hiring a bunch of Yale grads in in yeah. social justice and RFPs and no, pretending to understand that their viewpoint should influence uh, education in Newark or Connecticut. She just said, people are hurting. I mm -hmm. have money, and I'm going to push it out. That was a bold gangster move. Indeed. And she's marrying a science teacher. I know. Good for her. I you're know. you're in love with someone who's a science teacher. You're worth thirty yeah. billion dollars. You're empathetic. You're changing the world. Mackenzie Scott, you deserve all the happiness that is coming to you. I like that. What's your fail? Uh, my fail is what. So the. The stimulus package gets through. I think that's a great thing. I think this stimulus is less bad than the rest, mm -hmm. the relief package. But it just struck me that Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, was the only senator. And that is the Senate is supposed to be a deliberative body. We're supposed yep. to—they're supposed to argue, and then they're supposed to compromise with each other based on evidence and argument. And what we have now is essentially— red and blue, and they all get into their caucuses and say, all right, Nancy and Chuck or Kevin and who, who, whoever else runs the Republican caucus and say, this is how we're voting, yes or no. And it's literally a party line vote. And for once, we had an individual, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know uh, Senator Manchin that well. I don't know much. I, I, I don't want to make an assessment on whether his arguments were the right one. But he is doing, he's the one senator. Mm -hmm. He is doing what they're all supposed to do, and that is negotiate and negotiate. hammer out things and yeah. and say, okay, maybe the other folks have a point. So let's get let's get together. And it just struck me that right now, as we sit here today, we are one for a hundred in terms of deliberation and what the Senate is actually supposed to be doing. That's my fail. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. I think that's excellent. I didn't so much. I think a fail for me was Kristen Cinema doing the weird hands down thing. I thought that was thoughtless. Say more. She she was voting against the fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is fine. Like she can make her choices if she wants. I I do think the the Democrats failed in pushing it out so <sighs> much. They should have done it at ten yeah, and twelve. Agreed. You know, I, I know it was it was gradually. Agreed. It just seemed like an opportunity lost uh, in that one. But I didn't like how she voted. She she came out. She put her thumbs down like John McCain did during the healthcare thing, and then she curtsied. And I thought, well, you know what. You know, even if you lose, you're you're on a losing side. You don't want to be made fun of. Um, I didn't like that very much. I did not hmm. like that, not at all. Um, well, here's what I did like. I did mm -hmm. like uh, uh, the 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 vaccinations are going. I like how it's moving. It feels like there's some yep. moving, and I think it is a failure that schools are not haven't reopened, and there's only so much time left in the year. So that means kids really won't go back to school till September. Um, but I do think that. Um, that the vaccinations and these the CDC is is releasing important information. I think the Biden administration's done a nice job here, yep. and um, and so that's it, 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 there is sort of a feeling of 
possible hopefulness in the news, mm-hmm. which I think was going to happen any in some fashion at some point. Um, but you do feel like winter is over. I don't know why. I just feel like it is. It actually physically is here in Washington, but that's what it feels like. So I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful. That's nice. That's, that's what good. I feel like. In any case, um, so Scott, thank Carol. you so much. This has been thank a delightful you. time. I'm very <laughs> happy you got raised money. I'm serious. I am happy you raised money. You sound happy. <laughs> For my rabbit hole? <laughs> you sound rat happy. Rat hole. Not a rat, rat hole. hole. My rat, rat hole. hole. It's the expression I used to use when there was so yeah. much money in Silicon Valley chasing stupid startups. I don't think these are stupid startups. I think I'm happy that there's going to be serious startups done going forward. I feel like climate change, whatever you think of Jamath putting the money, it's climate change tech, education tech, health tech. I'm good with all those things. I'm good with all those things. And I think they're important for the planet. Um, Okay, Scott, that's the show. We'll be back Friday for more. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your questions for the Pivot podcast. We love listener mail. The link is also in our show notes. Scott, read us out. Today's show was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Ernie Intertod engineered this episode. Thanks also to Hannah Rosen and Drew Burrows. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or frankly, wherever you listen. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Three quarters of all philanthropic giving last year, a pandemic-related giving. Thank you so much from the country. Congratulations, Mackenzie Scott.